The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Arons-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change for the better. Today, we're going to talk about depression, not anxiety. But as my guest John Moe says, depression and anxiety, well, they're like hall and oats. You rarely see one without the other, and neither managed to have a successful solo career. Sorry for the 80s pop music reference. The 80s are very in now, though, at least according to my kids. Depression can have really distinct characteristics from anxiety and can have a much different effect on our work lives. For me, depression is very demotivating, and my work tends to suffer. Whereas when I'm anxious, I'm a wreck, but I'm also often sort of hyper-functional. But depression and anxiety definitely share at least two characteristics that we'll talk about today, both of which can really mess with your head and your career, magical thinking and unreliable narrators. You know them. John Moe calls magical thinking the if-onlys. If only I could achieve X, have Y, do this, then I'd be happy. And then there are the tapes of negative self-talk that can run on repeat in your head. I'm a failure and I don't deserve anything. And we'll talk about managing disruptive and uncomfortable change when you struggle with these kinds of mental health issues. Because John Moe hosted one of the most popular and well-loved public radio podcasts, The Hilarious World of Depression. He wrote a book called that, too. Moe has had a long and storied career in public radio, and yet, even with his reach and his fame and his celebrity guests and a growing community of people worldwide who care about mental health and talk about it, his show was canceled and he was laid off. So we'll hear about how he approached that change and others with humor and openness. First of all, you're the only other um, person I've ever interviewed who has a podcast on mental health and um, who, who seems to sort of love to dwell in the ridiculousness and gallows humor of it all. Um, and I've admired you for a really long time. Yes. And so it's, it's just really good to talk to you. Well, thank you. Yeah. That's, uh, that's always been the language I spoke. So I just translated it to the show as well. Did people give you an attitude when you decided to make this very serious topic funny and poke fun at it? <laughs> I got a lot of skepticism uh, from people, especially when when the name came out of the hilarious world of depression, which was originally kind of an exercise in thinking of the worst possible name for a podcast that I could uh, to kind of test my boss to see if he really wanted to go through with making a pilot of this thing. But yeah, I, I got some pushback uh, right away from people saying kind of the obvious retort, like the the logical retort is there's nothing funny about depression. And so it was 
the idea of the show, the idea later of the book, and the idea of kind of this whole proposition I'm setting forward is meant to be audacious. It's meant to to be kind of brazen. But to me, the humor is just a different way of understanding something. It's a, a way of seeing the same thing from a new angle and a new perspective. And that's what I've always done. So that made a lot of sense to me. Well, so... <laughs> You know, I, I, I'm an anxiety person. I, I definitely have had mm-hmm. bouts of clinical depression, um, and it, it visits. But anxiety is my traveling companion. Which okay, I, I, I want to hear about your relationship with anxiety. It's not something you talk about. Do you have? Do you? Ha- are you lucky enough that you have both clinical depression and clinical anxiety <laughs> disorders, or <laughs> or is anxiety not really your thing? I often say that they're the hollow notes of uh, <laughs> mental illness because you can rarely find one without the other. And they, they don't have very famous solo careers. Um, yeah, I, I've had anxiety, different levels of anxiety that have, that have proven to be obstacles, but, uh, but not really rising to the level of disorder. But yeah, it's absolutely there. One of the guests I had on said, that uh, depression is your fear of the past and anxiety is your fear of the future. And then you just have to try to, you know, shorten those and get into the moment as much as you possibly can. <laughs> I was also reflecting because, um, you know, this is this is a business show and, and anxiety is kind of great sometimes when you're an overachiever, because although it may shorten your lifespan and ruin your cortisol and your relationships, like it's really, aside from that, it can aside really make you that, hyper-effective at work. Like, <laughs> I always say that my hypervigilance is really the key to my success because I'm just constantly, like, making sure everything is happening all the time. But depression is different. Mm. Depression is kind of like a stoppage yeah. when it comes to the drive. Can you talk about that? Well, I mean, I think if you're – vigilant and and you're you credit your success to that then i think you're not really hyper vigilant i don't think you have a problem at that point i mean that i know people with anxiety issues who can't leave the house and who can't who find every day to be unbearable and they are racked with mortal fear at all times and that's you know that's a distinction like i find myself talking about the disorder part of it a lot because if if things are working and you're functioning, then maybe you're okay. It's like during COVID, people are saying, well, I'm, I'm depressed about what's happening with COVID. And I said, well, really? What, you know, what are you feeling? Well, I'm just down a lot. I'm really, I'm really scared. I'm really, you know, t- worried something might happen. And I always say, well, those, of course you are, because that's the proper healthy response. You're actually healthy. You're going through terrible times. But you're, you know, you're not deciding to, you know, move out to the ocean and you're not, I mean, there's a lot of things you're not doing that would indicate a disorder. In terms of of depression in the workplace, I found that a creative place to work and a creative job to have is, is really a benefit because, I mean, honestly, there's, somebody asked me the other day, well, what if you had never had depression? What What do you think it would be like now? And I said, well, I'm sure things would be easier, but I don't think, I think I'd be very reluctant to give up 
the wisdom that I've earned from it and the ability to see things um, from multiple points of view, to be able to see things, to see the trouble in things, to see the the warning signs that I think a lot of people miss. And so I feel wiser for having gone through it. I mean, my depression is mostly a, a dysthymic depression, which is sort of a, a low grade rumble that continues all the time. And I've mostly been able to, to keep it under control. I found good therapy. I found good meds. I learned a lot. I got very curious and, and buried myself in research. So, you know, I want to caution that I'm doing fine, but you know, some people who can't predict how they're going to wake up the next day is going to, that's going to be really complicated. If you have a nine o'clock meeting and you can't get out of the house because of depression, because of anxiety, um, I didn't, I didn't see the movie Joker because I thought it would just make me sad, but I'm told there's a, a line that Joaquin Phoenix says in, in that movie, which is the worst part about having a mental illness is everybody wanting you to pretend that you don't, <laughs> you know, so, so, uh, you just have to go through, go through the day like they do, but you just have to kind of put on an act. I don't really think of my depression as a disability. I see it as uh, an, uh, a thing in my life that I need to manage no different than someone with diabetes needs to keep an eye on their insulin. You say that, but in your writing, in your book, and, and, and I think this is a very common experience for people who, who have sort of that dysthymic chronic depression, is that you always feel like you're a failure, a loser, you're about to get kicked out of whatever good thing ever happens to you. So you say that it, it makes you who you are, but how can you be a success when you always feel like a failure inside? Well, if you're looking to external factors to, to validate who you are as a person, you're going to come up short. You know, if you're always looking for the promotion, the achievement, the new job, the new car, the you know more money, whatever it is, more higher salary. There's so many, I, I could fill several books with stories on people who've, who've been led astray by that. Um, and, and you talk about the, if only, or the sort of like, if, yeah. when I have X, Y, and Z, it's like this magical thinking of depression, you know, that like, yeah. when I get that promotion, I won't feel this way anymore. Right. And so, you know, I think that, I think a big part of it though is spotting that as the distortion that yeah. it is and saying, okay, this isn't, you know, here's what I'm feeling. And because I am who I am, I have to stop. I have to examine this. I have to see if this adds up with logic. And then I have to address that going forward. And it's a much more conscious process than somebody without depression. And so it's, it's checking back in and saying, okay, performance and achievement doesn't really match you know, the, the path to happiness, but becoming who I am as a person and saying, okay, I do have intrinsic value. I do deserve love and kindness and healthcare and everything else that, that a human is entitled to. Um, then, then that's where you dig your way out of it, not by trying to achieve yet more. And, and even since the book came out, I have a couple of friends who are, Athletes, professional athletes. I was talking to uh, Sean Doolittle, who's a pitcher for the Washington Nationals, and you know he thought, well, if I could just make an All Star team, then 
then clearly I'm of value as a person. And then that came and went and he's like, maybe it's two all-star teams. <laughs> and then he got a second all-star appearance. He's like, I, I bet I need to, to win the world <laughs> series. And then last fall he won the world series and it, you know, and he's like, at that point, I just said, this is wrong. This is what, this isn't what's doing it because he was, he was caught in that cycle. And it's, I mean, it's so common and, and somebody like that should be, should be held up as an example to everybody. Like, look, stop trying to achieve your way out of this. Here's Sean. <laughs> Here's what he learned. Right. I mean, you say that. You say it. it can come for anyone. The thing about depression, it doesn't care about your career or your big bank account. It just wants to, you say it just wants to kill, kill you. you. And, yeah. and I think that that it's really important. I mean, God, if you win the World Series and you still have that pit inside you. Yeah. But, but I want to go back to the piece about um, the unreliable narrator, right? Because I think that a common thread among people who live with chronic depression and anxiety is that they are constantly having a struggle with the unreliable narrator that is their mental illness who's telling them either A, if you only win the World Series, you'll feel great, or also, you suck, you don't deserve this. Mm -hmm. What is your process for getting past your own unreliable narrator and trying to get to the logic and the reality? Well, for me, uh, a few things have kind of led to some breakthroughs. And and I, I caution whenever I talk about this stuff that my process will be different than everybody else's process mm -hmm. as theirs will be from each other. It's, it's an individual journey. I'd make a terrible cult leader. I don't, <laughs> I don't ascribe to the one <laughs> single philosophy that will lead you to redemption. That said, for me, it's, it began with getting into good therapy with a therapist I really clicked with and then getting an inventory of what those common distortions are. Like you say, magical thinking, black and white thinking, catastrophizing, fortune telling, all these things, spotting when I was doing that and learning how to put on the brakes. I couldn't have done that by myself, just like I couldn't perform a kidney transplant on myself. It took someone standing outside to, to help me see that. And so that, that was a big breakthrough. And also kind of, there, there's the phrase depression lies is probably familiar to a lot of people. It does lie. It, it, and, you know, it's your own brain. I get it. Depression isn't an actual ghost. But, uh, but there, I think a lot of people don't give credit for how clever the lies are and how good depression is at lying because it's probably been with you longer than, than anything else. It's in a way your most intimate relationship. I always say that about. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it knows you mm -hmm. so well, it can masquerade as your own thoughts. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it can, it does a dead on impression of you when it's, when it's telling you, you suck or you need to achieve this. Or if you could do this, then, then everything else will go okay. Whatever it is that you're, that you're going through. And so, so kind of giving it credit, a, a big part of, of cognitive behavioral therapy, which has been really successful for a lot of people I know with depression, some it hasn't worked for, but a lot of them it has, is knowing where those distortions are coming from and knowing why you do that kind of thing. Like, like it's not enough to just say, oh, you know, I, in an uncertain situation, I always assume that I'm going to have the dumbest solution, you know, or that whatever it is like, okay, let's, let's unpack some of this stuff from your past to figure out where that is coming from. And then once you have the thought, it's not a matter of 
saying, oh, that's a lie. Uh, get rid of that. Throw up the wall. That's not going to work. It's, it's a matter of saying, okay, here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm going to sit with. Here's what I'm going to almost honor it to a certain extent, even though it can be destructive. Like, here's what this is. You know, take some breaths, fully feel it, understand where it's coming from, understand that it's a distortion, and then in, invite the traveler to be on its way down the road. <laughs> you know, so it's, so it's not a matter of like, you're never going to feel those things again. And because they're lies and you're going to shut them out, it's just like, you're going to, you're going to hear them, but then you just have to manage them. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. It sounds like, you know, that you've sort of successfully built distance from the thing, mm -hmm. right? And that you've almost made it into a... Is it a character? Does it have a face, your depression? <laughs> I've, I've experimented with that. I, I usually just think of it as, as a, a force more than an anthropomorphized thing. Mm -hmm. That's like, I debated, like, do I capitalize depression in this book? Do I capitalize the <laughs> D? But I, I kept it lowercase. I mean, what it is ultimately is figuring out what is you if the depression wasn't there. And that's when, and, and believing in that person as a person of value, you let go of the idea that you're, that you're trash or that you're always going to be miserable or that you're, you're dumb. And you learn to say, well, mm -hmm. okay, I'm, I'm worthwhile. <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a human with all the, the rights that that entails and, you know, feeling, feeling better about yourself uh, from that perspective lets you see that kind of in relief compared to, the the muck all around your brain that depression is causing. So so once that, I mean, it it really does sound like I'm I'm some prog rock lyrics here. But like <laughs> once once you can make that person glow a little bit more, you see all the tarnish all over, and you say, oh okay, that's the that's the stuff that I don't have to live with. I love that. You know, it's like when you get your kids the like 
excavate your own like dinosaur egg? Did you ever do that? And they have to chip away at this clay and then all of a sudden like, oh my God, it's a dinosaur femur. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. I want to I want to talk a little bit about um it seems like you're sort of in an interesting inflection point yeah. like many of us you know you were you were you were laid off right is that the right yeah. term That is the right term that's the term they told me I was laid off in June with about 25 of my colleagues uh due to economic reasons at the public radio company I was working at And what did old uh Clint D or like the sort of the struggle to build the inherent value apart from the achievement and the security do in that situation? Well, I was sort of prepared for it because I knew that the company was, I was working for was saying that they were in a, a financial crisis. And so the way I approached it, weeks before it happened, months before it happened, was to say, okay, well, that could happen. That happens to people in a lot of jobs and in media jobs more often than most. So that's a possibility. And I was—I had been worried about it. So I said, let's do some preparation for it. Um, I started, you know, looking into some other similar places and, you know, people doing similar kind of work. I started to gather a lot of information so I had some things in motion already, and I was also um, feeling about ready to leave anyway. But the big thing, and I've had shows canceled before. I haven't been laid off before, but I've had big projects I've been very dedicated to end. And um, because I, I tend to make things that a small group group of people love passionately, but not something that a huge group of people just sort of likes. Me and, too. <laughs> you know, such is my lot, such is our lot. So when it came, you know, it was, it was a blow, but I also instantly said, this isn't me. I wasn't that show. And that's a mistake I've made on other projects I've worked on. Cause I thought, well, if I just am so dedicated to it, then it'll be strong. If I just take all that is in me and give it to this show, then the show will be strong. And of course, in that process, I would always become miserable because I felt like I should always be working more. I should always be putting more of my heart into it. And, and, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a swindle that I think a capitalist economy eventually inevitably gives people like, you know, take, Take everything you have and put it into this. Right. And and it's funny, you know, I just when you were saying that, I was thinking that people people with 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 anxiety and depression who sort of gravitate towards getting enmeshed or being codependent are really good at mm. that, right? Like giving everything our all yeah. and subsuming literally ourselves. And then the blow is yeah. very we get rewarded for it for a while if it's good or if it's a hit. Yeah. But then when it ends, who are we? Yeah. I mean, I always took note of, of who I knew who was really great to me when my projects were not going well. And then I took note of people who suddenly wanted to hang out with me when they were going well. (laughs) I'm like, okay, I've got a ledger that I'm going to write this down in. But I really like, I, I had therapy a couple days after I got laid off and, and my therapist said, well, how are you doing with that news? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm waiting to be devastated, but I 
haven't been devastated yet. Well, I was going to ask because like I have a I have a feeling that you may have been preparing for the bottom to fall out at other times because that's what depression does, right? Like yeah. had, when it when it sort of did end, were you better prepared because of your history, do you think? Well, I think I was approaching the job differently. My my career didn't depend on working at that place. And especially in in media jobs, writing books and speaking and doing a podcast, you could do that a lot of places and you could also do it on your own. You know, you could, and I know plenty of people who have very successful careers basically doing it out of their own house. And so I'm like, okay, well, that's always an option. I could always hire myself. Um, but for me, the bigger issue is, is deciding at a certain point. Like I, I started this podcast because I wanted to have a show because I worked at a company that made shows. So I wanted to come up with a show and mental health seemed like a good topic. In the space of the four years I did, I did the show at that place, it became more, I'm going to talk about mental health and I'm going to talk about bringing these conversations out into the open. And a podcast is part of that and where I do it is part of that, but it's not the whole thing. Like I'm going to I'm going to talk about these issues as long as I have air in my lungs. <laughs> and if it's there, fine. If it's somewhere else, fine. And so I think that's, that's sort of the, like the indirect object changed <laughs> in the sentence, but that's about it. Yeah. So I, I felt, I felt kind of okay. Gosh, that's so freeing. I love that. It was great. <laughs> so another question I have, which is, you know, now that you're sort of a famous professional sad person, as you call yourself, yes. do you s- you're yeah, a pro. I went pro. Do you still? <laughs> I was so good at being depressed <laughs> that I went up to the major leagues. Do you still have to perform normalcy? Like, like a, a feeling for me when I'm in a depression is that I can't talk to strangers. I, I can't have small talk. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm bad at small talk anyway. But like when I'm depressed, I can't even pretend <sighs> to care or smile. And um, I think that's hard. Like when I go pick up my kids and I'm depressed, and they're like. Their other moms are like, who is the mother who looks who's sitting in the car scowling at everyone? But it's because I'm depressed. I cannot. But 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 now, like, do you have do you have the right to not perform being being okay when you're not? Like, how has that changed for you? Like in interacting with with other people? Yeah, I'm just curious. Like, if you reach a certain level of going pro as a depressed person, like, can you say? I'm feeling really depressed today. I don't think I can do this meeting. Or how do you handle that? Well, I mean, it's sort of like everybody's already seen me naked. Yeah. <laughs> like, <I've, laughs> like it's it's all it's all out there already, so I I kind of can't go back. I'm naturally kind of an introvert mm-hmm. and like yeah, the the small talk conversations. I used to do a a stage variety show at the Fitzgerald theater in St. Paul, thousand seat auditorium, every show was sold out. And then we, we wanted to keep it really human and connected to the audience. So I would go out and say hi to the audience in the lobby afterwards. That was the part I dreaded most. The worst like part. being on stage in front of a thousand people telling a joke, singing a song, whatever it was, that was fine. Like my heart rate was low, <laughs> but getting out in front of those people. And so I think lately I've just found a lower gear that I'm more comfortable in and, and I'm not compelled to impress people. I'm not compelled to, to entertain people. 
you know, I still like jokes. It's a way of, it's a way of talking for me. So I'll still make the jokes, but in general, like since, since really writing down all that I've been through, you know, with my experiences, with my health, with my family, and just knowing that and accepting it and finding the self value, uh, through it all, I'm just a lot more relaxed. And, and frankly too, like since I, got laid off. Um, since I left the place I was working, uh, my wife says, Oh, you seem happier. You seem, mm. uh, you smile more, uh, you're, you're calmer and you're better looking. And so, you know, <laughs> if your spouse says you're better looking, then obviously the right thing has happened. What's your advice for someone who's doesn't have the, the beauty of being a professional sad person and and sort of is starting out in their career and, and might be feeling depressed but but has to show up at that meeting, has to go to that, you know, networking happy hour with their boss. Do you have any yeah. tips about just getting through it? Boy. Um, I thought you were gonna say, what's your advice for people who aren't as good looking as you? <laughs> well, I'd love to hear that too. You know, I just I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, in that situation. I think it's never a bad idea to return to who you are in, in a quiet way. You know, like if you're going out there trying to impress, trying to dazzle in order to cover up something that is missing in, in yourself, I think you're really setting yourself up to, to fall on your face. I think sometimes in some meetings and in some situations in any job, you do need to dazzle. Like if you need to sell people on an idea, um, you know, prepare to perform. Right. But if it's coming from a place of trying to compensate for some other pain, mm. then I think that's a problem because it's really not going to be you doing it. But you know, the big thing is really though, if you're feeling rotten and it's getting in the way of things, go get help. Just go get help. And it, I know in, in our healthcare system being what it is, you're like, Oh, I, I'm going to get some help. I better call a psychiatrist. So you work up the nerve and you call the psychiatrist and they say, great, we can see you in nine months. And you're thinking, but I'm crazy now. <laughs> I, need, I need help right away. I'm not going to last that long. And, uh, yeah. And so if you can't get into the psychiatrist or the therapist, go to a, a family doctor, go to a general practitioner who can at least help you in that moment and maybe set you on a course that you're going to have to travel, but to feel better. Because if you're, if you're not functioning like you feel you ought to, you can feel better. And that, and that's something that I, it took me till like age 50. To realize that, and I'm 52 now, um, because it's another thing that depression gets so deep in. I got through two seasons of making my show before I really allowed myself to believe that, because I just thought, well, I'm not getting worse, so that's as good as I can do, which is a distortion and a lie depression was telling me so convincingly that I, by then, a somewhat of an expert on depression, couldn't even spot. So, I mean, it's a thing I evangelize now. Like, you can feel better. If you're, if you're roughed up, you can feel better than, than you are. It doesn't mean you're going to be happy all the time. Um, you wouldn't want that anyway, but, um, it just means that you can be better than than where you're at. When you when you did your show, you interviewed professional dazzlers. Yeah. 
you talk to people whose whole livelihood was commanding attention and holding a room and being a star, mm. and yet they were all depressed. What did you learn about how they compartmentalize or how they manage their mental illness through through their work and through what they love to do? I think for a lot of them, the work that they were doing was almost a way of talking to the depression and and communicating with it and trying to not so much solve it with what they do, but to kind of work with what they had. I'm I'm always very interested and I have a lot of friends in these jobs. I'm really interested in comedians and musicians and songwriters. And I think what they do is they speak from a sincere and kind of beautiful place, even if it is about pain, a kind of honest place that connects with people on some kind of level that, you know, a, a textbook about chronic major depressive disorder really wouldn't. And so the people I talk to who are dazzlers, you know, who have the room in the palm of their hand, they're doing that because they love it, you know, and it's, it's from a really sincere place. It's, it's not really from a, I'm looking for validation in this capacity. Cause mm. I think those people don't tend to become very successful. And, you know, there's plenty of successful people who, who do that and plenty of unsuccessful people who, who try the more honest and direct route, but the ones who are trying to solve it through performing and, you know, I don't, I don't need a therapist, you know, doing stand-up comedy is my therapy. I don't tend to see much of an improvement in the mental state of those people you know, over, over a long period of time, the, the audience isn't a therapist or your spouse isn't a therapist. You know, the, the guy at the gas station, your is, friends aren't therapists. Yeah. Like a therapist is a therapist. Right. They, and the, the guy at the gas station is probably not an endocrinologist. You know, people have different, different things that they do. And so, so yeah, people have, people have managed it in different ways. Um, you know, I will say that, the people I've talked to who've been through addiction and are in recovery, who are writers, performers, you know, songwriters, their work tends to get a lot clearer after they've, after they've uh, sobered up and, and are on that path. Mm. But for most people, it's more of an accompaniment than a, than a solution. I think it's really powerful. And, and I want to actually encourage the audience, even if you, have nothing to do with stand-up comedy in your regular life to go and listen to John's show. Because um, for me, as someone who just works in business, it's so empowering to hear people who are at the top of their game, who feel like I feel and yet are still at the top of their game. Um, not always. They have low points and, and low points are real. But I find your show powerful because it's hard for me to get Mm -hmm. corporate people to talk on the record <laughs> about their mental illness, but creative people and artists somehow have permission. And, um, but I see so many parallels yeah. Um, because work is work and the love of work is, is the same no matter what you do. Right. And so it's really powerful. The, the people that you talk to. Yeah. It's funny. I, um, you know, when I first started doing this, I thought, are you always hear about, the depressed comedian, the yeah. Pagliacci figure. And are there, are there more depressed comedians than there are depressed dentists? And, uh, Patton Oswald actually told me, no, he thinks that there's 
about the same percentage by and large in, in every profession. It's just that if your dentist was talking to you about suicidal ideation when they're doing their job, you'd quickly find a new dentist. But if a comedian's talking about it as part of their job, then it's it's kind of okay. It's just a different context. So, uh, yeah, so I, I wonder about that. Well, John Moe, thank you so much. Thanks, Maura. That's it for today's show. Thanks to my producer, Mary Dew, and thanks to Liz Sanchez for her help producing. Thanks to the team at HBR and the studio team who make the audio happen. I'm grateful to our guests for sharing their experiences and their truths, for you, our listeners, and for our advertisers. Please send me feedback. You can email anxiousachiever at gmail.com or tweet me at moraam. And if you love the show, tell your friends or subscribe and leave a review. From HBR Presents, this is Maura Aarons-Mealy.